FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. As always, I'm glad to have you with us for the show. I'm really looking forward to the next two days on Political Rewind today and tomorrow because we're going to be devoting uh, these shows to uh, stories about two of Georgia's great leaders, um, but told through different lenses. Tomorrow we're going to talk to the brothers, the Georgia brothers, who've made a new documentary about the life of Jimmy Carter in which they say that his legacy has been uh, wrongfully dismissed. They present a picture of all of the things they say he accomplished, which were ahead of his time, so that'll be tomorrow. But today, I'm very happy that we're going to get an opportunity to spend the show talking about the great civil rights leader, C.T. Vivian. Uh, As I said at the beginning of the uh, show, at the very opening of the show, um, C.T. Vivian was an enormously modest man, a humble person, and he never really uh, looked to have the spotlight drawn to him. And because of that, he may not be as well known to some people as the people we think of, like a Martin Luther King Jr., obviously, John Lewis and others. And yet, he was one of the most important leaders of the entire civil rights movement. Um, He died last July, July 17th, 2020. And um, really sadly, the funeral, as so many funerals have had to uh, be during the pandemic, uh, had to be held basically as a Zoom event. And so many people who would have gathered were not able to do so. But I thought we'd start the show by playing just a bit of what Joe Biden, then candidate for president of the United States, States, said in his remarks about C.T. Vivian. And C.T. was truly a remarkable man, a man whose physical courage was exceeded only by his moral courage, whose capacity for love overwhelmed incredible hatreds, and whose faith in the power of nonviolence helped forever change our nation. The number of times he faced down being drowned, being beaten, being reviled, only to stand up straight as a ramrod, bloodied but unbent, and declare the truth that he saw so clearly. Quote, you cannot turn your back on the idea of justice. End of quote. A soldier who refused to raise his fist, a preacher's voice helped electrify a movement. The leader who inspired generations to join him in the ceaseless march of progress. Joe Biden's remarks on the passing of C.T. Vivian I'm very happy that we're joined today. Of course, it's Thursday, which means uh, AJC editor Kevin Riley is here to help move this conversation along. We're also joined by uh, the man who uh, started writing this memoir with C.T. Vivian during his life and then completed it after C.T. died, uh, Steve Pfeiffer. Steve, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm happy to be here, Bill. I'm also really thrilled that we get to have uh, CT's son, uh, Al Vivian, on with us. Al Vivian, you have certainly continued your father's legacy, 
and uh, have carved out a remarkable uh, life of your own in dealing with diversity, helping bringing people together. So it's just a real pleasure that you were able to be part of this conversation. Thank you, Al. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. One of my favorite things to do in life is talk about my dad. So thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> um, Kevin, I, I'm going to start by mentioning something to you, and then I want Steve to pick up on it. Um, first of all, the title of the book, it's In the Action, Memories of a Nonviolent Warrior. Kevin, when I, when I read the title, I didn't understand why Steve had picked that title at first, and I'll ask him in a second. And then I realized that there are two things about C.T. Vivian, two threads that run through the entire book. One is that as much as he loved words, and we'll certainly talk about uh, what a wordsmith he was, um, at, but action meant more to him. But more important is that the theme in the book is you do not know how you're going to react faced with taking an action, faced with marching uh, in front of uh, uh, snarling police dogs, uh, uh, law officers with fire hoses and, and um, uh, weapons of destruction. Uh, and so to him it was very important to say you just have to take that step and you don't know what's going to happen. It's in the action, Kevin. And he certainly showed over and over again uh, that he had not just the moral courage and, and self-discipline to, to, to react in the way that would be most effective. I mean, the book is, is incredibly interesting if you don't know a lot about C.T. Vivian, and even if you do, because he seemed uh, at every turn to put his powerful physical and emotional courage to work along with an incredible intellect and command of language. So it's, a, it's really a joy to read these pages. Steve, I think the important thing to do here is for you to give us a little insight into how this book came together. Again, as I said, you started working on it with CT uh, and then continued it after his death. But tell us how you initially made connection with him and then how you um, went forward with the book after his passing. Sure. Uh, first, let me tell you a little about the title, if I may. Uh, I had proposed a different title to the family. I, I found a, a great, uh, he, he gave me a great quote where he said that we made uh, life miserable for all the people we were trying to uh, get to change their ways. Uh, and then he said, we were miserable too, but the difference was that we were happy to be miserable. And I thought happy to be miserable was a little like the, you know, making good trouble. But the family said, no, it's in the action. Dad was a man about action, and they actually sent me some sermons that he had written where in the margins he kept writing, it's in the action, it's in the action. So uh, in the end, that's what the title became, and I, I'm really glad that it did. In terms of how this book came about, Bill, uh, in 2014, I was working on another civil rights-related book called Jimmy Lee and James, Two Lives, Two Deaths, and the Movement that Changed America, about two foot soldiers uh, in the Selma effort uh, for voting rights that had lost their lives and whose lives had really accelerated passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And as you know, Dr. Vivian was intimately involved in the effort in Selma in the early months of 1965. 
and he had actually spoken to a church group on the night that Jimmy Lee Jackson was shot by a, a, a white state trooper in Marion, Alabama. So I wanted to get Dr. Vivian's uh, story about what had happened that night and what had been happening in Selma in general during that period. So I, I called him, I reached him in Atlanta, and we just had the most lovely conversation, and we hit it off. I, I say, that, you know, he called me Doc, and I, I felt so flattered that this hero of mine was being so intimate with me. Uh, later, I learned that he called everyone Doc, so <laughs> it wasn't quite as special as I thought. But but as we as we kept uh, talking, you know, I asked him if he'd ever written a, a, a book about all of his uh, adventures and journeys and thoughts about the movement, and he hadn't. So I said, well, you've got to write one. And... Uh, it took a few years before we started, but then we commenced work on on the book uh, probably late 2016, early 2017. Um, Al, let me get you in here uh, uh, before we hear the rest of how this book came together after your father passed away. Uh, that title, It's in the Action, I can understand why the family might have wanted to use that, uh, given that he was so much about just that. He never hesitated to jump in. I mean, from working in Peoria, Nashville, Chattanooga, Birmingham, St. Augustine, Florida, Selma, Chicago, he was in the thick of the civil rights movement of the, uh, certainly of the 60s, and going back even further than that in Peoria, Illinois. Yes, I mean, for, for Dad, that's why there was no memoir, because it was, it wasn't about sitting around writing. It was about being in the action. Uh, and he was always in the middle of the action. But, but again, you talk about how humble he was. He never jumped at the camera. Uh, it's just that there were rare times where the camera just happened to be there, like, like uh, when he and Sheriff Clark had their big confrontation. Uh, and, and another one of my heroes of the movement, Andy Young, said that in his mind, that single event did more to get the voting rights bill signed into law than any other single event. And so it was always about the action, always. Um, Al, <clears throat> uh, when you think about how, when, how, I don't know how old you are now, and I don't know how, you know, concerned you are about sharing your age, but I'm curious, I'm just as a starting point, when, what are your earliest memories? You watched your father through a great deal of the actions that he took, and I've always wondered what the children of civil rights leaders of their day uh, must have experienced as they watched things like Selma unfold. Yeah, well, so I have the, the benefit of being the youngest of seven, and so uh, I was so much younger that I, I, I didn't catch the nuances of the realities of dad being in the movement. Uh, of course, I can see the big picture stuff, but the, the other thing about that is that, that all, of the, all of the wives of the leaders of the movement were so good at, at, at guarding us and protecting us. So, so mom would not watch the news while we were around because mm -hmm. the concern that something might've happened and we might see it on the news. And so mom would have her friends watch the early evening news and let her know, they would call her and let her know everything's okay. And then she'd watch the later news after we were all in bed. Uh, but I do remember things like one day mom and I were leaving the house, uh, going somewhere, 
and there was a, a really big, uh, high-caliber bullet sitting on our front doorstep with a note wrapped around it. And mom just swooped down and picked it up as if it wasn't, you know, as if it was just like a, a, a rock or something sitting on the, on the porch. And I was like, well, what, what was that? And she says, oh, nothing. And we just kept moving like nothing ever happened. It was later that she told me about that. I, and it's funny when she told me, I was like, oh, I remember that. Uh, and I don't know why it stuck in my head, but it did. So there was, there was so many things like that where we were just protected. Uh, we had no clue. And so, 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 so mom, uh, uh, Coretta, Juanita Abernathy, uh, so many others, they would coalesce with each other to protect us, to, got, to, to guard us. So we didn't know so much. Now, my brothers and sisters could see more than I did, you know, but in, in my mind, I, everything was perfect and rosy. You know, I just had, the, in my mind, the normal childhood. So back to the development of the book, um, Al. So uh, Steve's working with your your dad. They're getting this thing done, and then your dad dies. And I have a sense that at that point the family had to spring into action, maybe dig through a bunch of stuff and provide. I mean, how did you guys – did you feel like the project was over, or did you say, no, we're we're carrying on, we're going to find a way? Well, well, actually, Steve was so on top of it that that, – I didn't have to do a whole lot then. I was I was I was doing the business part of running the company, uh, Basic Diversity, and uh, my sister uh, was involved in uh, other things like that. But but Steve would talk more to that than I could. Right, uh, Denise, the oldest of Octavia and CT's children, was really my liaison on this bill. And after uh, Dr. Vivian passed away. Uh, she was very helpful in getting me uh, documents and material and access to all the information that I needed. Also, uh, for your listeners, there's a lot of C.T. Vivian information on the Internet and some wonderful YouTube videos of him giving sermons and lectures and talks, interviews that that really convey to uh, viewers why Dr. King called him the greatest preacher that ever lived. He had such a way with words and was so charming and powerful at the, at the same time. So I was able to assemble uh, what I needed for the remainder of the book, thanks to uh, the efforts of the family and archival information and other material that was on the on the internet that uh, really helped in filling in some of the gaps for information that uh, I hadn't been able to get from him before his passing. Steve, one of the things your memoir makes clear is how intentionally C.T. Vivian lived his life how thoughtful he was about every, basically every moment of his life. And I think one of the most interesting symbols of that is something you describe early on in the book, which is the ring that he designed himself, uh, which he wore every day that represented the various facets of who he believed he was and what his place was in the world. Tell us about that ring. Right, that was the very first thing he told me, and it's how we begin the book. It's if you want to understand me, look at the family crest that I designed. And it 
references slavery. It references coming out of slavery and beginning to own your own land. And it represents the importance of education. And it represents the importance of not just education, but imagination. And then it references the church. There's a cross which, as he said, undergirds everything. So that, uh, that was really important to me in terms of coming to an understanding. I'm glad you pointed that out, Bill. And I felt very strongly about beginning the book that way because that was who he was. Al? Sure. Jump in on that. Oh, so so the I remember when Dad designed the family crest, and I, I I remember when we were all given our our ring, and it was it was it, it was just incredible for me. And 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 so the the cross is is the is the background of the ring, and in between each of those segments, because it now divides the ring into four parts. That's where we had the 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 bright shining star coming out of slavery. Uh, and then, far, and then land, which was representing the farm coming out of slavery, uh, uh, doing our own crops as a family generations back, and then books, which shows the education piece, and you know, it was it was all about showing all of that in a representation that was the, really the family history, and so it was it for me it was just a proud moment when I was given the ring, and had it you know, and Dad really like sat down and explained every piece of it and what it meant. Uh, and it had actually a, a big carving, a wood carving of it made that he had in, in his office at home. Uh, and so you could, every time I'd go over and if I went in the office and talk to that, you'd see it up on the wall as a reminder. And it was like what he made for himself to always remind him also of from whence he came and what the family struggle was. And it, it's, a, it's a very important piece. It's yeah. close to Kevin, the it's a remark. Oh, go ahead, Kevin. Um, it's remarkable that, again, he was able to lay out so clearly basic principles of who he believed he was and pass them down to his uh, uh, children, uh, uh, like Al, Kevin. Yeah, you know, Al, one of the things uh, that, that struck me as I, as I read the book, too, is um, I guess sort of two things that come together. The first is your dad's background's different than many of the other leaders of the civil rights movement. I mean, in the end, he's a Midwesterner, not a Southerner. I mean, you, you yeah. would say. Yeah. And he also had this ability to, I would just say, uh, uh, relate, communicate, and influence people at all levels of society. You know, he had the intellect to talk to CEOs in his days in Chicago and the ability to hold his own and, and influence them. And then he, at the same time, he was working with gang members in Chicago. And I mean, great. talk about that a little bit as one of his children. I mean, what a remarkable thing for someone to be able to travel those, those journeys with different people. Well, you know, so, so dad always believed that, and, and this is a statement that he made all the time. You know, when you're a kid, your parents would say things to you, and it meant nothing to you when you were a kid because it was above you. You couldn't catch it. But it was yet still still simple, and then later as you get older, it means a lot. Dad used to always say, life is in relationships. Life is in relationships. And, and what he was really saying is that you got to be able to build and forge strong relationships 
across the spectrum with everybody because that is what life is all about. It's not about how much money you can make. It's not about the things that you own. It's about the relationships that you build. And he was very big on that, very strong on that. And so he believed in making relationships with everybody to include knowing that to change this entire nation, which is what the movement's mission was, you need every segment involved and you want to make sure that no segment of society is left behind. So it was always reach out to everyone across the full spectrum, not just, you know, if you're trying to make uh, things right for African-Americans, you, you can't only talk to African-Americans as well. You need to make sure you're talking to whites. You need to make sure you're talking to Latinos, Asians, et cetera. But the full spectrum and at every level within that, because it was all about reaching people's hearts to do the right thing. And so, you know, people have good hearts at every level. There's some that have bad hearts at every level. And you got to reach all of those people, bring them on board in order to change a nation that said it believed in the Constitution, that said it believed in the Bible, but yet the actions historically, traditionally, continually were not lining up with that. So Dad knew that he had to forge strong relationships with everybody to make that happen. Can I add Steve, something um, here? Yeah, sure, of course. Uh, I, I found a great article written in The New Yorker in 1964 by Calvin Trillin, uh, where C.T. and Dr. King and some of the other SCLC folks are on an airplane, and they're confronted by a, a white preppy type uh, from uh, Alabama who's challenging them for moving so quickly. And uh, C.T. responds by quoting Arnold Toynbee. Uh, it, it, he was an intellectual. And, and Al can tell you about the, you know, the importance of all the books in, in uh, both C.T. and Octavia's life. But he was, he was, as you pointed out at the beginning, Bill, and, and you've alluded to as well, Kevin, uh, he, he was a man of action, but he was also this intellectual who read and, and cultivated uh, African-American literature and other political philosophy that, that, that influenced him. So uh, you have it absolutely right. And Chicago is a great example of the kind of dichotomy of, of C.T. Vivian in that, on the one hand, he's working with, with, with gang members, and, and on the other hand, he's working with, with CEOs to try and get better jobs for African Americans in, in Chicago. And Chicago's also an example of, of I think he was a, an incredible visionary. He saw the North as the next battleground, so... After Selma, he was quickly up to Chicago, as was Dr. King. But uh, he also created, right after, after Selma, an organization called Vision, which became Upward Bound. And, and he also created one of the first uh, models for remote learning by teaching seminarians going to Shaw uh, university in, in the Carolinas uh, that they could could learn from home. And he created uh, the anti-Klan network in 1979 yeah. to combat white supremacy long before people were really dealing with that on a daily level like we are today. Um, Steve, you actually uh, quote uh, him in the book as saying uh, that he thinks that vision his project Vision, which did help high school students 
uh, continue on their path with college educations and, and was very successful. He felt that that was underappreciated, that it never got the attention it deserved. Right. And, and that's saying something for, for him to say that something he did was underappreciated because that's not typical C.T. Vivian and saying, oh, they should shine the spotlight more on, on what I did. But that really was very important. And Oprah and many other prominent Americans came through that program that, that he designed that began with 700 students in, in the South shortly after, after Selma. Um, I've got to get to a break, but but before I do, I want to read a quote from the book that can set us up for the next segment. Um, at one point, uh, Steve, uh, you quote him as saying, here are some thoughts about movements. If you're in the minority, you need a movement, and if the people won't move, you can't have a movement. Martin was special, of course, meaning MLK, because he got people to move and therefore he started a movement. If they hadn't moved, he could have talked behind the pulpit forever, but nothing would have actually been accomplished. And Al, the reason I think that sets us up for the next segment is I do want to talk about your father, MLK, John Lewis, and the others who courageously put their lives on the line every day in the movement to battle for equal justice in the South. Fair enough, Al? Fair enough. We'll do that after we pause for these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. My partner, my partner on today's show, AJC editor Kevin Riley, joined by Steve Pfeiffer, author of a new memoir, co-author of It's in the Action, Memories of a Nonviolent Warrior, and C.T. Vivian's son, Al Vivian, joins us. We, we are obviously not going to march through every city in which uh, C.T. and the other notables in the civil rights movement made, made progress, and in some cases didn't make much progress over the years. The, the, but we already alluded to the fact that one of the most important moment, moments in the entire movement was in Selma when um, C.T. Vivian brought a group of people to register to vote, a group of black people to register to vote, was confronted by Sheriff Jim Clark and a number of his deputies, and they had an encounter that literally made history that day. I'm going to play you a slightly longer excerpt from the news film that you can see online of this incident, you're going to hear C.T. as he talks to Sheriff Clark. Then you're going to hear a scuffle. And during that scuffle, C.T. Vivian is punched by Jim Clark, falls to the ground, and you will then hear him get up and pick up right where he left off. Here it is. This courthouse does not belong to Sheriff Clark. This courthouse belongs to the people of Dallas County, and these are the people of Dallas County, and they have come to register. And you know this within your own heart, Sheriff Clark. You are not as evil a man as you ask. You know in your heart what is right. You just refuse to do it because you want these people behind you. 
And as sheriff of this county, if you're deeply concerned, you will go call the registrar rather than keep people from standing inside. What you're really trying to do is intimidate these people, and by making them stand in the raid, keep them from registering to vote. And this, this is a kind of violation of the Constitution, the violation of the court order, the violation of decent citizenship. You can turn your back on me, but you cannot turn your back upon the idea of justice. You can turn your back now and you can keep the club in your hand, but you cannot beat down justice. And we will register to vote because as citizens of these United States, we have the right to do it. I'm looking down the line seeing all the people who've been in jail for felonies. That's what I'm looking Precisely at. Precisely right. And if, they, and if they're not fit to vote, you'll be able to find that out. But you'll not know it until they're, until they're on the registrar. And many of those have a felony action because Sheriff Clark made them a felony action, not because they were rightfully Steve, what did that moment lead to? Well, it's it's interesting, Bill, because it was captured on television just by chance, as as Al pointed out earlier uh, in the broadcast, that that we learn a little about C.T. Vivian, or the rest of the nation learned about him just by chance, because sometimes he was picked up on on television. But it was very important that that particular moment was was captured on television because it was rebroadcast on the evening news uh, to the north and and to Washington, D.C., where people who were considering the Voting Rights Act uh, could see it and see the forces of evil and have to look into themselves to see if they wanted to perpetuate a system. And I I kind of compare it uh, to... uh, the handheld cameras today that are capturing uh, offenses against people. Uh, in, in the 60s, you only had the three major television networks, and, and maybe they were there to capture certain moments, and maybe they weren't. And now uh, the equivalent of that is the citizen journalists. But uh, if I may, because uh, you were talking about movement before we went to the break, uh, CT's thoughts about movement, uh, he articulated to me when we spoke about the incident that you just played. And can I read a couple of, of, of uh, paragraphs about it? Here's, sure. what he, here's what he told me. With Jim Clark, it was a clear engagement between the forces of the movement and the forces of the structure that would destroy the movement. It was a clear engagement between those who wished the fullness of their personalities to be met and those that would destroy us physically and psychologically. You do not walk away from that. This is what movement meant. Movement meant that finally we were encountering on a mass scale the evil that had been destroying us on a mass scale. You do not walk away from that. You continue to answer it. It does not matter whether you are beaten. That's a secondary matter. The only important thing is that you reach the conscience of those who are with you and of anyone watching, both the so-called enemy and those who are preparing the battle and anyone else who may be watching. 
Very, very powerful, Kevin. Indeed. Um, that incident, um, which, by the way, is recounted in a story that our Ernie Suggs did. And Steve, I have to right. thank you for giving Ernie some credit in your in your book as well for the, his reporting uh, and telling some of the stories about CT. It's an amazing moment. And I've watched it several times through the years. But but I come I mean, because of all of its implications and its history. But the, to me, one of the most amazing things is the composure of C.T. Vivian, who literally could not be more articulate in making this argument he's making on the courthouse steps, is punched in the face, knocked over, and barely misses a beat, and is just as articulate in the aftermath of the punch. <laughs> so, um, Al, you know, as you know, I had a chance to, to uh, sit with your dad one time at, a, at an event when the Hawks... Um, unveiled their Dominique Wilkins statue back in 2015. I'm sitting at a table. I was invited. I'm sitting at a table in the back of the room. And who comes down and is assigned to the same table but your dad? And I'm thinking, what the heck is he doing here in the back with me? You know? And uh, we had a great conversation. And I don't think it would ever occur to him that he should have uh, been seated at a more prominent place, which, again, those two incidents really tell you an awful lot about the guy, don't they? They do. They do. You know, for me... The, the the most important statement in that whole clip, I mean, all of that clip is just phenomenal. And you're right, the way he held his composure and everything. But for me, what stood out, and I didn't catch this, until, and I saw that as a kid, but I didn't catch this line until I was an adult. He says, you're not as evil a man as you act. It showed that even at that time, he's trying to connect with this guy who wants to have nothing to do with him. He's trying to say to this person, this man who is – who is pushing evil, trying to stop the Constitution from working, he's saying to this guy, you're actually a good person. Don't do this. I mean, that for me, is, life is in relationships. Him trying to build relationships across the full spectrum of everybody, even his enemies. He's saying that you're not as evil a man as you act. And he's, he even says to one of the officers that they're supporting Jim Clark, at one point he says to him, he says, this man is going to lead you into a courtroom the, uh, the same way Hitler, uh, the people that followed Hitler ended up in a courtroom. You know, you're going, to, they're going to, you're going to have to have your day in court. He's trying, to, he's trying to get them to see you're doing wrong. You're better than that. Make a change if you believe in democracy, if you believe in the Constitution, if you believe in, in the Bible, if you believe in anything that's righteous, do the right thing. And to me, that's, that's the most powerful piece of that whole, that whole clip for me. He also would appeal to their Christianity, as you mentioned, the Bible. Uh, when he confronted uh, Mayor Ben West in Nashville in 1960 uh, during the efforts to integrate uh, the downtown lunch counters in the department stores, uh, he was on the steps of the courthouse with Diane Nash and yes. saying, uh, do you consider yourself a Christian? If you're a Christian, how can you behave that way? And uh, Mayor West took great offense at that, but in the newspaper uh, articles about that, done by, interestingly enough, David, David Halberstam, who was a reporter yeah. for the Tennessean at that time, uh, your dad had to be, uh, said, restrained by some of the other ministers because he was really up in, in the face of uh, Mayor West questioning his Christianity. Yeah, and, and the funny thing is, so, for me, I'm, I'm so, so so Martin Luther King Jr. 
made the statement. So, so the church is supposed to be the light of the world. And King made a statement back in the day that uh, why is it that the church is consistently the taillight and not the headlight? Because when it comes to this fight, they're not leading anything. And so I'm, I'm unfortunately asking myself that same question and making that same statement to people today who call themselves righteous and Christian and moral and believe in the democracy. Then why are you sitting back quietly or why are you actively trying to take away my right to vote? And so those things are as, are as, are as uh, important today as they were then, because it appears we're living the same thing all over again. Uh, but then again, that's not, that's not uh, anything different from the typical history of America. And I hate to say that as a former army captain who loved this country, but there was a, there was a civil rights act of 1866 that said it was illegal to discriminate against people based on race. But yet and still, if that's the case, if we had a civil rights act in 1866, why did we need a civil rights movement in the 50s and the 60s, 1950s and 60s? Because all of that got taken away. And we're watching right now, we're going through that same cycle, and it's being led by people who call themselves pro-American, pro-Constitution, pro-democracy. And these are the people that are trying to take away democracy right now. And I'm watching the evangelical church sit back silently and watch it, or even worse, are backing those politicians who are pushing that stuff. And, and you got to yes. ask yourself, where's the heart of America? I'm sorry to interrupt you here for a second, Al. Um, Steve, it, it, in fact, uh, you quote uh, uh, C.T. as talking about the fact that he knew the civil rights movement wasn't over because the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act were passed. He knew, as so many of the other leaders did, that this was a struggle that would continue for their entire lives, and it certainly did in the case of C.T. Vivian and so many of the others. That's absolutely right, Bill. And I just want to uh, piggyback on the one thing Al uh, mentioned uh, about the, the role of the church. Uh, in, in talking with, uh, with C.T., one of, the, one of the things he said was that one of the few things that uh, you might take positively about the segregation that existed when he was growing up was the fact that the, the churches were largely segregated. And therefore, within the heart and soul of the black church, a movement could be created. But if, if, the, if, if blacks had been second-class citizens in a structure of the white church, the movement may not have had an opportunity to grow the way it did out of the black church in the in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. So, Al, you know, Bill made that reference to the leaders, and particularly your father, recognizing that, say, passage of the Civil Rights Act did not end their struggle and their purpose, uh, which leads us, of course, to that book he wrote, Black Power and the American Myth, um, yeah. which I think was published in 1970 or so. Yeah. Um, where he, he sort of makes the point that um, in the South, the effort was to simply change the law. It was part of why the leaders targeted things in the South. But changing the law wasn't enough in his view. And he was very, uh, very deliberate and articulate on that. Well, because, you know, you, you can change laws, but it's, it's much harder to change 
traditions, customs, and people's hearts. Uh, and and so we are we are uh, we we've gone away from um, saying the blatant evil things. We just make sure that we set the systems up to still have the same end result. Uh, so which is why we're having to fight the battles right now that we had to fight back then. I mean we are things go in cycles, and and if, and the reason why it's so easy for us to keep repeating these same things in history is because we don't really teach American history in the school system. And so because we're teaching American mythology as opposed to American history, people can't see these things coming. So if we taught real American history in the school systems, then the people that are adults now, when, they, when, when, when politicians put forth uh, racist policies, the people would say, well, wait a minute, that's the same that happened in 1950-whatever, or 1940-whatever, or 1960-whatever. They could see it coming. But because we teach that we've always been this fair, equitable, just society, then people don't know that this is the same old okey-doke, and they keep falling for the same old okey-doke because the politicians keep doing the same thing because the people can't see it coming. We, we've hidden fact from people. Uh, and if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat your history. And that's exactly where we are as a nation. And the sad part about that is the rest of the world is taking advantage of that. So so right now, China and, and, and Russia are like relishing in this because we're so busy fighting each other that we can't really be as strong as a nation as we could be. The United Nations is now making comments about our voting irregularities. Uh, improprieties when they've always looked at America to be the nation that they can talk about as the example for everybody else in the world to follow. And that's, that's pretty pathetic. The goal should be to get more people to vote. As long as these people voting legally, get them to vote. But we, we just saw the most, the most secure election in history. And then based off of a lie that it wasn't, we're now trying to take away people's rights to vote. You know, we're, we're making um, it now. So the voters aren't picking the politicians, the politicians are picking the voters. Uh, well, that's interesting. Uh, as a matter of fact, Steve, I got to get to a break. But before I do, let's conclude on that uh, note here. One of the things that you point out in the book is that w- that the Supreme Court decision in 2013 in Shelby v. Holder, which was the which was the ruling which overturned uh, preclearance of uh, redistricting and other political decisions relating to elections in in states like Georgia, that that was heartbreaking to people like C.T. Vivian, because it undid, in so many ways, the 65 uh, Voting Rights Act passed that Lyndon Johnson pushed through. And, and it's important to mention now, because this will be the first redistricting, in Georgia and every other city in the co- state in the country, that will not have preclearance. And we're going to be talking a lot about that as this show moves forward to the redistricting session here. But the point being, Shelby V. Holder was a heartbreaking thing for CT and so many others. Absolutely. And John Lewis called it a dagger to the heart. And it's so interesting now that uh, Al and John Lewis's son and Bernice King are so involved in in trying to change that in Georgia and elsewhere. 
I got to get to our final break of the show. When we come back, I want to talk with all of you, uh, and certainly with you, Al, about the legacy that uh, CT has left, not for just all of us, but in your case, you very specifically, Al Vivian. We'll do that more after these messages. Al Vivian, I think it was in 2013 that your father, C.T. Vivian, was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And as they always do, the White House taped interviews with the recipients in that year. And I want to play for you just some of the remarks your father made and ask you how they inspire you as you move forward in your life. So do what you can do and do it well, but always ask your question, is it serving people? And if, but if you don't get upset at seeing people hurt, suffer, put in bad situations, uh, put in situations they're never going to get out of for the wrong reasons, if that doesn't really make you a little angry, really, all right? Uh, angry enough to do something about it, uh, then you wouldn't think about it anyway. So I'm going to ask Kevin Riley and Steve Pfeiffer, who uh, wrote the uh, co-authored uh, C.T. Vivian's memoir, but first of what they thought about that quote, but Al Vivian, that's your dad talking. <laughs> well, that that captures him so well because there's the heart where it's it's feeling bad for people who are suffering and feeling that there has to be some action to uh, to counter that but then he also invokes anger you've got to feel angry about that and and that's what that's what can get you kind of off of your seat and and getting into the action so I, I think it's a it's a, a really good uh, reflection on his part that really reveals kind of just the way he thought and acted. So, Kevin, let me ask you, because I want to conclude with Al talking about this, but what do those words say to you, Kevin? I mean, I think it, it, those are words that, that will survive history. It, those are, he is saying things that we can ask ourselves at any moment in time during any difficult debate we're having as Americans. And to me, that is the part of the book I enjoyed the most. Is I think so many things C.T. Vivian articulates were just as, are just as important now as they were, whether he was articulating them recently or decades ago. And uh, that certainly comes, as we listen to what you just played, that certainly comes true. Well, also, you as a newspaper editor, Kevin Riley, in many ways, that's the mission of a newspaper every single day. Right, to comfort uh, the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Al, Vivian, Al Vivian, 
Al, we don't want to let the show go by without saying how you've carried on your father's work. You, you, your father and Charles King started diversity training before anybody had even heard of diversity training. And to this day, you carry on their legacy, working with in corporate settings and nonprofit settings, helping black people, white people, other minorities come together and understand each other better. And I'm, your work has been so well received. And it's got to be so much about what your father started. I, I truly see what I do as carrying on dad's work. Uh, or and let me say not just dad's work, the work of the movement. Uh, what, what I love about the, 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 the statement there that dad was making in, the, in his interview, getting the Presidential Medal of Freedom, is that dad always led with his heart. You know, and I, I just so love that. He always led, led with his heart, but he always connected it to a strategy. And so as a, I'm, I'm a former Army captain, and as a former Army captain, you know, I learned a lot of things in the military, and one of them was you must always have a strategy and you must always play the long game. And Dad believed in playing the long game. He believed in always having a strategy because without strategy, nothing really gets done. And so I love the fact that, that he always led with his heart and he connected it to strategy. I am, I am so honored and blessed to carry on Dad's work. You know, the, the – the, uh, the whole thing of the, the Constitution and the Bible were the two things that, that, that King, Dad, and the whole movement used to push America to really living up to what it said it believed in. What I really love is that what's added to that now is also big business, in that demographics have shifted so much to where the big businesses realize they must get on board. So when, when um, Rodney King was beat, you didn't see big businesses put their brands on the line about that. When, when Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and, and uh, uh, Ahmaud Arbery were murdered this past summer, you watch big businesses put their brand on the line because they realize they have to. And I know in particular because Generation Z, the youngest generational group, they are looking for a purpose-driven organization to where they want to go work and where they want to spend their money. And so big businesses realize that is their next line of their marketplace and their employee base, so they're being pushed into doing the right thing. And I love that because that's a much larger, more diverse group than was backing the movement in the past. It, we're seeing a lot more change now than ever before. Uh, Al, we're almost out of time, but when you bring together uh, groups of African-Americans, whites, Hispanics, other Asian-Americans and others, um, and, and try to help them understand each other better, are you hopeful these days? Because the world at, right, that we're looking at right now is so fiercely divided. But when you get real people together in a room, you've got about 30 seconds to tell us whether you see hope in, in those settings. So, so in the 30-second blurb, I'd say it's like the opening line. You talk about Dad's love of, of literature and books and reading. It's like the opening line of that old Dickens tale, A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. <laughs> so I see great things happening. I see average person wants to do the right thing, but I also see uh, a lot of people pushing the forces of evil and a lot of average people not knowing what's really going on. Al Vivian, thank you so much for sharing with us your uh, remembrances, your thoughts about your dad, C.T. Vivian. Kevin Riley, I always love having you with me on Thursdays. Um, Steve Pfeiffer, you're a uh, book is It's in the Action, Memories of a Nonviolent Warrior. Thank you so much for helping us keep alive today the memory of a great leader in civil rights, C.T. Vivian. Thank you, Steve, for being with us. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about this great man.
We'll be back tomorrow. We're going to talk tomorrow about Jimmy Carter's legacy with two filmmakers uh, on the show. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Wear your mask, of course. And, and remember, put it above your nose. And also, since I'm sure you've already been vaccinated, tell a friend it's time they do the same thing. See you all tomorrow.